You may or may not have received an email from me uh, yesterday. Um, if you have uh, children a, uh, from sixth grade up to twelfth grade uh, who are in the congregation today, uh, we are going to be speaking on some very sensitive topics of sexuality um, that you may not be comfortable having your uh, sixth grade to twelfth graders uh, be a part of this morning. Um, so we also invite them to go down. Uh, Miss Tory has uh, graciously set up to allow them to help down in the Sunday school this morning. But this Wednesday, it, uh, in, the, in the eyes of the world, or at least in this country especially, our thoughts are going to be turning to romance. Because this Wednesday, February 14th, is Valentine's Day. Are you ready for Valentine's Day? This day was created, they say, to commemorate a man named Saint Valentine. Unfortunately, Valentine was a very popular name back in the third century in Rome, and there are at least three saints who are uh, listed by that name, Saint Valentine, and nobody can agree which story uh, Saint Valentine is supposed to be celebrating, but all of them have a couple of things in common. Many believe that whichever Valentine it was, the one in question was a Roman priest who performed secret weddings against the wishes of the authorities. Not against the families, just against the authorities. And legend has it that he was imprisoned in the home of a noble and that the noble in that home had a daughter who was blind. And Valentine prayed over the daughter and she received her sight and the entire household came to faith in Jesus Christ which was one of the things that made him a saint in the eyes of the Catholic Church. And, but then, of course, the Catholic Church uh, at that time decided to torture and behead him um, on February 14th. Very romantic, right? It was, it was very romantic that he, that he died on February 14th, apparently. Um, and it was romantic enough that English poet Geoffrey Chaucer wrote a poem called The Parliament of Fowls, where a queen or a goddess or something, we're not quite sure, um, got together and called all of the birds of the world to couple up, to find their mates. And he wrote this, for this was on St. Valentine's Day when every bird comes to choose his mate. Valentine's Day, secret weddings, torture, beheading, and romantic birds. Now turn to your spouse and tell them that you want to be their romantic bird. Go ahead. No? All right. Just tell them you don't want them beheaded, okay? That, all right. But somehow, we have evolved as a society, and uh, now we have progressed past all of these things, and now Valentine's Day is a day where we're supposed to express our love and our affection with greeting cards, and with flowers, and with gifts. And do you know who receives the most uh, Valentine's Day cards, gives and receives the most Valentine's Day cards? Anybody guess? It's the schools. Children in school give and receive more Valentines because they are forced to, because they have to get those big packets with the, with the 24 cards. And you can't just give a card to one person, you gotta give a card to everybody, and then everybody gives a card to the teacher. So, um, only about 190 million cards are given uh, 
outside of school. But if you add the school cards, it reaches almost a billion cards, almost 800,000 cards given by students back and forth each year, each year. So it's a big deal, and it's really a big deal for the card companies who want to keep selling those cards. But usually, we think about Valentine's Day, we think about romantic love, we think about our, our husband, our wife, our boyfriend, our girlfriend. Um, and that's where we're going to kind of focus the rest of this morning, is on this idea of this kind of romantic love. And we've ex- been exploring a sermon series called God on Trial. And we're exploring the ways that God and God's children have been kind of indicted Throughout our history, we've been accused of uh, not being uh, the best people. We've been accused of doing things um, that we believe are the right things to do because of our faith, and we've been accused of, of doing those things, and people don't like that very much. So they will come after us a little bit, especially in Western society. And we are looking for ways to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us. And we're looking to do that with gentleness and respect. And this topic that we're going to be talking about this morning is one of the topics that has, uh, I, I, I hear conversations in person, online, that garner the least gentleness and respect among Christians. And again, before we go any further this morning, you should know that the rest of the sermon is probably going to be at least rated PG-13. And we are probably going to delve into some rated R territory. So I just want, again, I I want to be responsible. I want to let everybody know what's going to be going on. But this morning, we're going to be looking at an indictment that not only separates us from unbelievers, but that has actually caused church denominations to split apart, to have such great disagreements about what God's Word says that they split apart. And the indictment goes a little bit something like this. It doesn't matter who I love. And if it does, then I don't care. If God cares that much about who I love, then I don't care about God. That's what we hear. And this morning we're going to be talking about uh, this idea of Uh, of romantic love. A lot of times in church we're talking about Christian love, we're talking about brotherly love. Today we are going to be talking about intimacy. We're going to be talking about romantic love. And we're going to be talking about God's plan for romantic love. And as with other things we've talked about in this series, we're going to start in the book of Genesis. Because that's where a lot of things start in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read about God putting into place His plan for marriage. So after God had created the universe, He said, let there be light. He created the, the, the earth. He formed the earth. He brought about the plants and the animals and everything that He did, He did through His Word. We read all throughout Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be, and there was. But we get to Genesis chapter 2 and we see something completely different. Instead of using his words, God uses 
his hands. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, God formed the man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the only creation that we read about in Genesis where God was actually doing the creation, not just speaking the creation into existence. We should feel extraordinarily special that God formed us instead of just speaking us. But after God created this human being, this man, it wasn't long, at least in this narrative, we don't know how long it was, but at least in the book of Genesis before God announced that he wasn't finished with his creation. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That's right. Guys, God looked at us and said, The boy needs help. <laughs> I look at myself every day and I think the same thing. And here's Wendy coming along to help me, and it's great. But God said he needs a helper. He needs to be with somebody. It's not good for him to be alone. And in the next two verses, the Bible explains how God brought every single animal on earth to, to Adam. And he let Adam name the animals, but none was found for him. None of the animals worked out. Adam didn't look at one of these animals and say, wow, this is the one. Now, some people point to this action and say, well, see, God's not all-knowing because if God was all-knowing, he would have known that Adam wouldn't have picked any of the animals. And you're, you know what? You're right. God knew that Adam wasn't going to pick any of the animals. There's two things going on here. One of the things doesn't have a whole lot to do with our sermon, but I'm going to tell you anyway. One of the things is just that God allowed Adam to name the animals. And when you allow someone to name something you kind of give them a little bit of authority over it. You give them that, that ability to, to claim it, right? We name our children. Now, that <laughs> we won't get into that, but that whole thing is, is starting to become a, a little bit of an issue too in our society. But we name our children because they're our children. We, we brought them into this world. We get to name them, right? And this is what Adam is doing. He's naming all of the animals. He is... Uh, taking this idea of dominion over the animals that God listed in Genesis 1.28, because God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is one thing that's happening in this passage. But the other thing that's happening, and it, it's not really spelled out explicitly in the passage, but if we kind of read between the lines a little bit, I think that what God was doing is God was bringing every creature to Adam. Adam is looking at them. Adam is naming them. And Adam is then able to realize that there is nothing on earth that can satisfy him. There is nothing on earth that can bring him joy. And I think God wanted him to know that. 
because right after he names all of the animals, God goes on and he causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There's that forming again. God didn't just say, but there's a woman. He took from the man. He formed the woman and brought the woman to him. And look what Adam says. This at last, at last, I've seen every animal on earth. I've named every animal on earth. This at last is bone, and bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then, this is not Adam talking in this next verse. This is God talking. In the next verse it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So let's unpack this a little bit. First, God puts the man to sleep, which is our natural position anyway. Puts him to sleep, takes a rib, forms woman, puts woman in front of the man. And the man looks at the woman and says, Whew, man! And that's why you're called woman. But... <laughs> He's excited. Finally, he has a helper that is suitable for him. And what we find here is the biblical definition of marriage. And it is not said by Adam. It is said by the Creator God. A man shall get out of his parents' basement... And the man will go and find a woman, a woman that can be his helper, a woman that can be his partner, a woman that is going to uh, be able to help him when he can't help himself, which in my case is often, right? But you're going to find one of those people and you're going to hold fast to her, right? And the word hold fast here means to cling to, to keep close uh, my favorite definition that I found in the, in the Greek dictionary, to be glued to. That's what this Hebrew word means. You are being glued to your partner. We should be treating, men, I'm going to tell you right now, we should be treating our wives as extensions of ourselves. We should be treating our wives with love like we love ourselves with respect as much as we respect ourselves. And women, you don't get off the hook here either. Women, we are supposed to love and respect our husbands. And this is lacking a lot. And not just in the world, this is lacking a lot in Christian homes. This is lacking a lot in places where, and I'm going to say something that's going to upset a lot of people right now, especially moms. We have women, Christian women, whose lives are so wrapped up in their children for 18 years, or 22 years until they get out of college, that when the child is gone, they find they have nothing for their husbands. 
And Wendy and I were talking about this at breakfast yesterday. She belongs to a group of uh, Facebook people who uh, it's called Grown and Flown. It's these families where their children have finally grown up and left the house. And she told me that there are so many women that are talking about divorcing their husbands after the children are gone because they have nothing for them. They have taken all of their love and all of their respect and put it on the child. And men are just as guilty. Except that men stop paying attention before the child is gone. This is a real thing that's happening in our society. We are supposed to be extensions of our spouses. We are supposed to love them and honor them and respect them. We are supposed to put them first. We put God first, but in our human relationships, we put our spouse first. And that's really hard for a special, and, and again, I'm sorry if this upsets you, but for a lot of moms to hear. A lot of moms want to put their child first or their children first, and then they'll put their husband first after the child's gone, and it never works. And so many marriages end because we lack our priorities. God didn't say, leave your mother and your father and cling to your wife until your children come along and then your, what, your wife's going to go off and just hang out with the kid for 18 years. And you're just going to go off and hang out with your buddies and go fishing. We are supposed to treat our spouses as extensions of ourselves. We are supposed to love them as we love ourselves. And I don't know if anybody has seen the movie Fireproof. But there is a line in Fireproof that hit me so hard when we watched it. And in Fireproof, there's this line. Uh, they're talking about, um, the, the, the one man's talking about how he doesn't love his wife anymore. And he wants to get a divorce. And this guy that he's talking to says, you can't love her because you can't give her something that you don't have for yourself. We have to love our spouses as we love ourselves. That's the biblical definition of marriage. And when the Bible says the two shall become one flesh, it doesn't just mean sex, although it does mean sex. Woohoo! But it also means everything my heart, my soul, my mind, and yes, my body all belong to my spouse. That's the biblical definition of marriage. Now it does go on, the last verse of Genesis chapter 2 says, and the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. And all of the married couple said, Amen. Right? There is this component of sexuality between husbands and wives. And lest we think that this is just an idea that was introduced in Genesis chapter 2 and never happens again, we can go to the words of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees came and they asked Jesus if they could divorce their wives. Now, I don't even know what put it into their heads to ask a question like that. But is it lawful for us to divorce our wives 
for any reason. That's what it says. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus, being Jesus, answered their question with a question. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Pharisees, you're supposed to know this stuff. This is like page two of the Bible. This is page two of the Torah. It says it right there. God says, you are supposed to become one flesh. Have you ever tried tearing your flesh off? Have you ever had your flesh torn off by something? It's supposed to be painful. And when we marry, we are supposed to be one flesh. That is what Jesus is saying here. And this is where this second indictment comes in. It doesn't matter who I love. Now, I know a lot of you think that I'm talking about uh, homosexuality right now, and we will. But I'm talking about marriage. I'm talking about people who decide that their husband or their wife isn't enough. And so they go out and they look for other men or women to fulfill them physically, maybe emotionally. God calls this adultery. But this is the thing that is happening. It doesn't matter who I love. And I have experienced people who try to justify cheating on their spouse. They, just, they try to justify it. And they have friends who agree with them. Yeah, man, you really should go out and just find somebody else and, and you know, don't get divorced because that's going to cost you like 50% of everything. But you just go and you just like cheat and don't worry about it. It's happening. This is not the biblical definition of marriage. It is not even the biblical definition of sex. It is a perversion of what God has given us. Now, this indictment is made often between people who don't think that marriage has to be between a man and a woman. They think it can be between a man and a man. They think it can be between a man and a woman. But we're also looking at people who are going out and looking. There are websites. You don't even have to leave the house anymore. There are websites where people are looking for some sort of physical or emotional connection with people. There are websites dedicated to showing you sexual fantasies. And they're not just for the world. According to a Barna research study, Barna does a lot of church research. They, all they do is ask church people questions. And according to one of their studies, 68% of Christian men and at least 20% of Christian women admit that they use pornography on a regular basis. Those are the ones that admit it. And it gets even sadder when they ask pastors. 
56% of pastors admit to using pornography on a regular basis. This is not a problem for the world. This is a problem for us. And it is widespread. And a lot of people justify it. Well, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just doing it by myself. I'm not going out. I'm not cheating. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Oh, yes, you are. You are seeking stimulation from someone who's not your spouse. And that's cheating. And that is not what God intended for marriage to be. But it has gotten worse. And it has gotten worse throughout at least U.S. history. Used to be you had to go someplace to cheat on your wife, to cheat on your husband. Now you can do it from the comfort of your own home. There are websites that will get you hooked up with other people. And then you go and you do their thing and then you come home. In high schools, it's called, and, and this might be old now because, you know, I've only been teaching for five years. Used to be called hookup culture. I don't know if it's called something else. High schoolers, you can tell me. Or maybe you don't want to tell me because you don't want anybody to hear what it is because you don't want anybody to think you're doing it. But used to be called hookup culture. We used to date. Remember dating? <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember going steady? Who went steady in here? Anybody go steady? We went steady, and it meant like you would wear his ring around your neck, or you would wear his varsity jacket, right? And, and maybe, you'd, maybe you'd kiss after the football game. Then it, then it just became dating, and we'd go out and we'd do stuff. And then it became hooking up. There's no relationship whatsoever. There's no commitment whatsoever. We're just going to hook up, and hook up sounds exactly like what you think it is. We're just going to hook up. And it keeps getting worse, and it keeps getting worse, and it keeps getting worse. There are people who want to say that marriage does not have to be between a man and a woman. It can be between a man and a man. It can be between a man and a woman. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. And now there is a very, very tiny but growing population of people who want to say that it is okay for an adult to have a sexual relationship with a child. And it is getting worse and worse and worse. And it happens by degrees. And that's how Satan works. Satan doesn't just punch open the door and say, men and men and women and women get together. He starts with, hey, we're not going steady anymore now, we're just dating. Hey, we're not dating anymore. We're just hooking up. Oh, well, if I can hook up with a girl, maybe I can hook up with a guy. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. People will actually point. Christians will actually point to the Gospels. And they will say, Jesus didn't say anything against homosexuality. He did not stand up and say, homosexuality is wrong. Yeah, he did. Remember in Genesis 2, Pharisees, when God said that a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, 
his woman and they will become one flesh? That is the way it's supposed to be. So, no, maybe he not, did not say the word homosexual, but we know what he meant. Anybody here like crime novels? No? Just me? No, like, like crime novels? I just finished reading one. Actually, I just finished listening to one because it was an audio book. <laughs> I listened to it in the car. But this story, uh, it was called The Killing Floor. And it was fascinating. This man just kind of strolls into this tiny little Georgia town, and there's a whole bunch of things that happen, and there's some circumstances that happen. But he learns that there's this huge counterfeiting ring that's, that's, that's centralized in this tiny little town where, like, nobody ever comes, right? And you, you know what a counterfeit is, right? Everybody knows what a counterfeit is? It's a fake. Usually it's fake money, but it could be fake anything. Some of you could be wearing fake Jordans to school. Some of you could be carrying fake uh, Kate, Hudson, Kate Hudson, Kate Spade bags. See, I don't know bags. <laughs> Walked through a mall one time, and, and we passed by this whole table of, of bags. Wendy used to like Dooney and Bork bags. And I walked past this, I was like, whoa, these bags, and they were fairly expensive. And I looked, I'm like, whoa, these are like really cheap bags. And I looked at it, and, and it, it wasn't Dooney and Bork, it was like Dooney and Dork, I don't know, it was something. <laughs> but it looked so, it looked so real, you couldn't tell. Well, Wendy could tell, she's like, yeah, that doesn't even look anything like it. But that's what a counterfeit is. And in this novel, these criminals are manufacturing counterfeit $100 bills. And what they're doing is very, very clever. They're taking $1 bills. So they're collecting actual real $1 bills. And they're collecting millions and millions and millions of them. And they, they've discovered this process of being able to bleach off the printing on this money paper. And then they reprint the, the, the paper with $100 denominations. It's, and, and you can barely tell that it's not real. But it's a counterfeit. It's made to look and feel like the real thing, but it isn't. And usually there's like one little tiny thing that gets changed. And if you really know the authentic thing, you can spot a counterfeit. Now, think about what's happening in the past couple of decades with marriage. Think about people who want to take the real Bible, the real gospel, scrub its pages clean, and reprint with a counterfeit of what sin is. They want to rename sin, and one of these counterfeits has to do with marriage. They just replace one of the words in the definition and try to pass it off as okay. Instead of a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, they will change the word and say male lover or female lover. And it's so subtle. And the world is being convinced by Satan that love is love. Have you heard that phrase? Love is love, and it doesn't matter who I love. 
because it's love. No, it's lust. It mostly has to do with sexuality. It is lust. It is not love. I can love anybody with Christian love, with brotherly love. I can't love anybody, just anybody, with sexual love. That's not what the Bible tells us. Even in Christianity, especially in Christianity, there are churches that are splitting. They are leaving their denominations because some people in their denomination want to provide this counterfeit for marriage. I've got a pastor friend whose church split from their denomination because their denomination said that they had changed their stance. The Bible no longer says that homosexuality is a sin. It no longer says that gay people can't be pastors. And these churches have split from their denominations, and they've started a new denomination that stays with the biblical definition of marriage. Even in the Brethren in Christ Church, and you might not know this, but in the Brethren in Christ Church, there are congregations where there's some people that are trying to get the Brethren in Christ Church to change the definition of marriage. And I, I am intimately familiar with one of the congregations that's been trying to do this over the last 10 years. Fortunately, it has not happened yet. Fortunately, the people who are in the church are taking a stand for biblical marriage. But it's happening. And if we believe the whole Bible, then we must believe that sin exists. That's the very first thing that we must believe if we believe the whole Bible, is that sin exists. And we know that sin is action against God. Action against His Word. Action against His commandments. And we must believe that what the Bible calls sin is actually sin. And we've been talking about sexuality today. And it's really easy for Christians to go up against each other on this topic. And one side will say it's not sin. And one side will say it is sin. And, and we butt heads and we think, it's a, we think it's, it's, it's a good argument with something that we should make sure that everybody is knowledgeable about, that everybody knows about. But sin is sin. It doesn't have to be about sex. Adultery, yes. But also anger and boasting and coveting and deceit and envy and greed and hate and drunkenness and gossip, hypocrisy, idolatry, lust, malice, murder, guile, pride, selfishness, stealing, strife, swearing falsely, unforgiveness. They are all sin. And that's just some of the sins that the Bible lists as sin. And when a church turns a blind eye to one sin, it opens the door to all the others. And like I said, it doesn't have to have anything to do with sexuality. If a church turns a blind eye to, to strife, just to regular arguments in the church, if a church turns a blind eye to one Christian not forgiving another Christian. 
If a church turns a blind eye to hypocrisy, we are opening the door. We turn a blind eye to one sin, and then it's two sins, and then it's three sins, and then we're blind. We're just blind. And that's when Satan wins. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how crucial it is that we know what we believe and that we know why we believe it. And I encouraged you to start studying your Bible if you haven't done so already, or to keep studying your Bible if you do it every day anyway. It is crucial that we know what God calls sin. So that when the world or another church tries to present something that is a counterfeit, we can identify it. And that's how people beat counterfeiting. The U.S. government beats counterfeiting because they have people that study the true article. They don't study 500,000 different ways that something can be counterfeit. They look at the real thing, just the real thing, and they study every square millimeter of it. So that when somebody presents something that is even slightly off, they're instantly able to identify it and say that's not the real thing. As Christians, our real thing is the Word of God. We need to study it prayerfully with the help of the Holy Spirit to show us every millimeter of truth. So that when the world starts to come at us with some sort of a half-truth or a quarter-truth or something that's 99.9% pure, we can say, but it's not. That's a counterfeit. Let me show you what the Bible says. We need to be ready to do that. At the same time, we have to live in this world. We go to school, we go to work, go to the grocery store, we go to concerts, we go to sporting events, we go to all of these things. We also need to learn how to treat people with gentleness and respect. Just like the Bible says. And just like everything else, getting up in somebody's face and yelling at them is not going to convince them of anything, and it's likely to push them away from even questioning whether there's a God or not. We need to learn how to do this with gentleness and respect, but we also need to learn one more thing. And this is the thing that's hard. We need to learn how to live with the probability that people will look at us and call us hate-filled bigots. We have to look at the possibility that when we don't ally ourselves with sin, that we're going to pay a price in the world for it. This is especially difficult 
for school-age people. People who are school-aged, I want you to be listening to me for the rest of this time if you haven't been listening to me already. And parents of school-aged children, college-aged children, you better be listening because this is crucial. Your children are going to face persecution if they stand up and they call sin, sin. If they stand up for their belief in God, if they stand up for their relationship with Jesus Christ, they are going to suffer. And they're going to suffer big. Your children are living in the very first generation where they have known nothing except the acceptance of homosexuality. This is the very first generation, the last maybe 15 years, probably only 10, where, where homosexuality has been the norm. They're living in that right now, and they are going to be pressured to accept it. And if they don't accept it, they're going to be in danger of losing their friends. They're going to be in danger of losing opportunities. And they might be in danger of being kicked out of school. Because that is what is happening today. Students are being suspended for standing up for their faith. Students are being suspended for simply saying, I don't believe that homosexuality is, good, good, uh, is a good thing. I believe homosexuality is a sin. Some of them are being expelled. As parents, we need to prepare our children for all of that. Young adults, you're going to be parents really, really soon. Some of you. We need to start preparing our children because they're going to go through these things in high school. They're going to go through these things in college. And I'll bet that half of you have gone through something similar or would go through something similar in your career. I know I have as a teacher. And I could go on. We could talk about this for hours. But I'm not going to. So be happy about that. If anybody wants to stay after church, though, and talk about this more, maybe talk about some ways that we can help prepare our children for these things, to help prepare ourselves for these conversations, I'm happy to stay after church. I'll be right here. If you want to set up a special time one-on-one, -on -one, maybe with you and your family, if you've got family with children, and you want to talk about these things just kind of in a, a more private area, call me, email me, call the church office. Call Renee. She knows where I am all the time somehow. <laughs> I want to talk with you because this is important. It may be the most important thing that we do in this age is to learn how to stand up under this pressure to accept sin as something other than sin. But I want, I want to leave you with this. And again, we're talking about respect. We're talking about gentleness. And I want you to remember, because it's true for you and it's true for me, that no person, 
no matter their sin, no matter their lifestyle, no matter who they are, no person is deserving of us stripping away their dignity as created beings of God. Every person is worthy of respect and gentleness. They are not deserving of our acquiescence. They are not deserving to be able to force us to abandon our faith to make them feel better. But they are worthy of our gentleness and respect. Because we should have hope in Jesus Christ. And we should know that no matter what happens, even if I get expelled, even if I get fired, for standing up for my faith that God is going to take care of me. God is going to take care of my family. These are the things that we need to think about. And the last thing they deserve is our consistency. They deserve for us not to be hypocrites. So when we're talking to them about their sexual sin, we better be right with our anger and boasting and coveting and deceit and envy and greed and drunkenness and gossip and hypocrisy and idolatry and malice and pride and selfishness. We better be, ex we better be showing Jesus Christ in all things. We need to be consistent so that when they look at us, there is nothing that they can point to to discount what we say or to call us hypocrites. And that's going to take calling on the Holy Spirit. That's going to take asking the Holy Spirit to convict us, to forgive us, and to lead us in paths of righteousness. And that's what we're going to do right now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for forming us. Not just speaking us into existence, but forming us from the dust of the ground and breathing your own breath into us. We thank you for giving us the perfect model for marriage, the perfect model for sexuality. Father, we are facing a much more hostile world even than I faced when I was in high school. We are facing things that we have never faced before. And Father, we need your strength, and we need your courage, and we need your wisdom. Father, we need the Holy Spirit. And we need Him first and foremost to convict us if we are living in some kind of sinful situation. Whatever it is, whatever the sin is, send Him to convict us. Give us the strength and the wisdom to repent of that sin, to ask forgiveness, to put it aside, 
and then give us the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom of your word so that we can recognize what you want as authentic, as real, and so that we can identify those things that come up that are counterfeit, that try to convince us that sin is not sin. Father, we need you to help us. Give us courage. And also give us gentleness and respect for all people who are created in your image. All people who you say in your word you want to come back to you. You want to see them repent. You want to see them return to the kingdom. Father, give us that conviction too. And we thank you. We ask that you not make this just one day or one prayer. We ask that you make this our lives. Let us be pleasing to you and let us build your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ in whom we place our hope. Amen. Mutual woes our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. There may be some people in this congregation that are struggling with sin. If you are, first turn to God in prayer. Second, turn to someone that you feel you can trust. Confess to them and allow them to help you to share that burden, whatever it is. Let us be a church that doesn't allow, that doesn't want, that won't stand to see people hurting because of their sin. God bless you this week.